Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with... Adam. And I'm Daryl. Yeah. So, this week, we're going to be talking about some of the early councils. And I know what you're thinking. Councils, that sounds boring, but these councils, I'll tell you what, looking <laughs> through them, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening. So, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Father Daryl, what, what are the councils we're going to be talking about today? So, yeah, we talked about the Council of Nicaea a couple weeks ago, and that's the first ecumenical council. Now, you've got local councils all the time, the ecumenical meaning for the world. So Nicaea in 325 is the first one. Emperor Constantine calls that to deal with this problem with the Arians. Talked about that. So I just refer our listeners back to that episode to get more details. Well, in 381 is the second ecumenical council, and it is in Constantinople. So we plan to talk about that today, the highlights, and then we'll talk about the highlights from the third ecumenical council in Ephesus in 431. And we're going to put them together because the, the themes, like the problem, is kind of still going on. And we're going to talk about what they're clarifying and what they're dealing with in each of these cases. And if, uh, if you think that was boring, <laughs> let, me t- let me just tell you, can I go ahead and just go, go for ahead, it? Go, go ahead, ahead and start yeah. it off. So Adam. let me tell you, uh, while I was reading this, these councils and what was happening to them, and even what happened before they even started discussing, I'll just give you the, we'll start with the, the second ecumenical He's council. He's been waiting to do this for, for a while. <laughs> oh my gosh. Let me tell you, it's crazy. So you start off right from the get-go, 36 guys show up and they're like, no, you're heretics, go away. 36 bishops right, right off the bat. So that's how like day one as people are showing up, that's what happens. And so pretty much what, what would happen is there was a, a hierarchy of who would reside as the president over the council that was happening and who would bring order to it and different things like that um, and have some resemblance of authority. And so the Bishop of Alexandria didn't show up. The, the Bishop of Rome never shows up. He sometimes will send representatives. And so it was the Bishop of Antioch. So they started all off, and it's a discussion on whether or not the bishop of Constantinople was legitimate or not. But hold on a second. Let me say something before you keep cruising here. What is Constantinople? Constantinople. So when Constantine, it's Constantine's city. So when Constantine became emperor of the Roman Empire, he moved the headquarters, the imperial capital, from the city of Rome to the city that he was building in Byzantium, okay? And okay. He, he turns it and renames it Constantinople. Today, it's called Istanbul. Istanbul, not Constantinople. That's right. So he, he, he's the one yeah. who starts Constantinople, and the, the apostolic chair there is St. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So you've got five major patriarchs, so key apostolic sees, churches, in the early church. Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. Keep going. So, like I said, we have this hierarchy and how they, how they start. So, the, the first order of business uh, was to say whether or not that the Bishop of Constantinople was valid. And so, kind of the background of what had happened was some Egyptian and Macedonian bishops came up and pretty much ordained him without really talking to anybody else. They just come up and, and do this, uh, this ordination. And so the the question is, is this valid? And so before the Egyptians or the Macedonians who supported uh, Maximus, which was the bishop they had placed there, they decide that, oh, he's not valid. (laughs) And then go ahead and install another bishop, Gregory, as, as the bishop of Constantinople. So to spice things up just a little bit, we had talked about how the bishop 
of Antioch was the president over this council. Well, he dies in the middle of the council. <laughs> like not like literally like in like literally in the midst of it, but during the, the length of this council, he dies. And so guess who's up next? Gregory, the brand new Bishop of Constantinople. So when the Egyptians arrive, they see, hold up, what happened to the bishop that we placed here? And they start arguing back and forth. And it gets so heated. Gregory, the brand new bishop, starts to realize, I'm not going to win this. Like, this is not going to happen. This is bad. Like, they, they literally talk about, they describe the demeanor of Gregory. He looked physically exhausted and worried because he was losing the confidence of all the bishops that were there and the emperor. <laughs> and so Gregory does the, probably the best thing that he could have done. This should be a movie. It, it really should. <laughs> he does the best thing he can do is he stands up in the midst of them and says, let me be as the prophet Jonah. I was responsible for the storm, but I, and I will sacrifice myself for the salvation of the ship. Seize me and throw me and quits in the middle of a council. <laughs> Peace out. But he's, like, he's like, listen, what's worse, getting fired or quitting? It's like one of those like, well, you're fired. Like, you can't fire me. I quit. That's, I'm not going to be fired. I am going to hand in my resignation. Yes, yeah, so he hands in his resignation. And this creates a whole new issue. They accept it. Well, guess what is not present there? There's not a bishop of Rome. There's not a bishop of Antioch. There's not a bishop of Alexandria. And there's no longer a bishop of Constantinople either or of Jerusalem. Who is going to be in charge of this? So they say, well, we need to pick a bishop of Constantinople. So what they do is they create a list of the men there present. And the emperor looks at it, no lie, looks to the bottom of the list and says, that guy. And so here they pick Nectarius, who was at the time unbaptized and was a, c- a civil official, but they, they chose him because he was on the bottom of the list. Let me, let me clarify that about him not being baptized yet. So it had become the custom at this point for many people to be Christians in the sense that they were still technically catechumens. They were putting off baptism until basically their deathbed because they did not want to be baptized, then sin against God and have to go through penance. So Constantine, the emperor who called the first council, he's not baptized till he's on his deathbed. So it's, I would have to go do some more study specifically upon this, this man here to find out what was his holdup. But probably, given that he was a civil official, it could be something like that. So it's an interesting, but either way, right? He's, 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 he's oh, the bottom yes. of the list. Yeah. He's, they made a list of the people qualified, and he was on the bottom of it. And just because he was at the bottom of it, he was chosen. And so it's really interesting what ends up happening is he gets baptized, and they throw the, start throwing bishop robes on him. Like, it's so close together, just even his baptism and him becoming a bishop. It's, it's really interesting. That's not recommended, by the way. No, I, don't, no. I, don't, I think this was uh, some extreme situations. He then presides over as the president over this council. So that's like his first thing he does as bishop. He gets to tell other bishops, be quieter, that's enough, or let's calm down. So it, it's really uh, well, Yeah, so I mean, the, the history tells us that it's because the man's demeanor, his character, you know, he was, had that kind of the presence about him that would make him respected. But he, and he goes on and he serves as the patriarch of Constantinople for a number of years. Does, does very well, all things considered. So you never know what the Lord's going to do. So if you think to put that it the, that way, to say what the Lord's going to do. Exactly. The, the, yeah, how the church operates. So if you think that the councils, like you hear councils like, oh my gosh, like I think you're thinking of uh, 
like you know, like rules of business. Uh, you look at like, oh, this is gonna be so boring. This is what oh, is Robert's happening. Rules. Yeah, yeah, Robert's, Robert's, rules, Robert's rules of business. Right, right, there we right, go. Right. My bad. You think all oh, boring? Like you? That's like it's almost like uh, synonymous in your brain. But these councils were far from it. We have people getting fired, people dying, people getting turned away, and then just them picking from the bottom of the list to say who's going to be in charge next. And this is an important point for a number of reasons. One of them is this, is that when these councils are convened, they don't know they're going to be ecumenical. They don't decide to convene an ecumenical council in that sense, because you have councils that are being gathered all the time. And sometimes some of them are local and some of them are much more, uh, they're much broader. So in case in point here at Constantinople in 381, there's about 150 bishops there. So not even half of what was present at Nicaea, but nobody from Rome is there. Pope Damasus I, we mentioned him talking about the journey of scripture. And then when Caleb was, you were talking about the Council of Carthage there a couple weeks ago, which is not Rome, but it's the same time frame. Uh, Damasus has his own council in Rome in 382. So he and the Roman Church, the the West, because the Bishop of Rome is the Patriarch of the West. You've got four in the East, one in the West, because there's only major one major city like that in the West is Rome. Uh, Damasus and the West will receive the decision of Constantinople, and the and the big thing that happens is the expansion of the Nicene Creed. So it's the Nicene Constantinople Creed, but we just say Nicene Creed for short. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy, all this stuff going on. Yeah, it is. It is. I like seeing that situation where someone who's at the lowest of the low just get yeeted up to responsibility and just watching, seeing how they act. But <laughs> Yeah. So what, I mean, I, I guess as we're looking at the at Constantinople now, really, why are they convening another council? And it's because of the Aryan problem that they thought they dealt with. They dealt with it at Nicaea, but it kind of morphed. You start to run into a, a bigger issue with semi-Aryans. Now, that was around then, but it keeps becoming a persistent issue. So they have to convene again to deal with it. So you end up with a, a, the group of uh, Sibelians, Sibelius, who was a modalist. Sibelius said that there are no persons. There's no divine persons. You know, think of, um, he'd say there's one God who wears three masks, not persons. And Sibelius, you've got Sibelius on one side, and then you've got, you mentioned the bishops from Macedonia and why they're turned away. They're turned away because they're heretics. They're, they're Panumatomokians. Yes, try saying that. Panumatomokians, which translates spirit fighters. They were called spirit fighters because they denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit. At some point, we'll talk about the Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great, Gregory the Great, and Gregory Nazianzus. Basil and one of the Gregories wrote books on the Holy Spirit where they argue for the divinity of the Holy Spirit against the Macedonians, against these spirit fighters. And they're using the language of the scripture of the fathers, of tradition, and from Nicaea. As a matter of fact, Basil fights these guys for a long time verbally. You know, he's trying to win them over. He's not like drawing swords with them. Uh, <laughs> even though the council's behavior shows you how worked up they were. And he, he dies just before the council happens. Like he's not able to get there. So this is, Constantinople is really dealing with the legacy of errors that were not able to be completely extinguished from Nicaea. And so you end up with the um, decision coming down of them saying, no, we're going to expand the creed so that we're saying that the Christ is the only begotten of the Father. And then you get that whole section of addition after the confession and the faith of the, whole, the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, proceeds from the Father and the Son, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all additions to the creed. So those are some like huge changes that happen in Constantinople, and that when word gets to Rome that these are the changes— the West says, yes, we agree, and thus we have an ecumenical council. 
So that's that's kind of how that shakes out, and that's what they're dealing with. Now, two things I want to bring up about this council, and before I say those two things, let me say this to you, Caleb, and this is for all of our listeners. Okay. All heresy fundamentally can be found because of there's a deficiency in the doctrine of Jesus. Who is he? Doctrine of God himself. Who is God? Who is Jesus? And you can find in every major group today that's got an issue with that some deviation. And very often, what's happening today, people will, will affirm these ancient creeds, but they'll change their practices. We talked about that, uh, was it last week, I think. When you change practices that, and you don't, you will, in a, you will apostolic practice, let me qualify. When you change apostolic practice, you will inadvertently change apostolic doctrine a generation or two later. It's going to happen. Historically, it happens all the time. Last year, I talked about the, the change of the kenosis, when people began to teach that when the Word emptied himself to become flesh, he ceased to have certain divine prerogatives and became subject to error. Well, you bump that forward a few generations, and what do you get but a whole group of Pentecostal and Charismatic Christians who think they can prophesy inaccurately, and it's still under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So you can't get to that if you don't change something with Christ and the doctrine of God. So what comes out of Constantinople here? Well, one is that Christ, the God, is three persons. Christ is one person with two natures. That's another council. We'll get to that in a moment. But there's three divine persons and one divine nature. There is no modalism. There's no Sibelianism. The spirit fighters, Pneumatomokians, they're wrong. The Holy Spirit is God. And to ensure that he is God, here's the additional lines to the creed, which are scriptural statements, many of them, or the summation of scriptural statements. Why is, here's, here's one of the ways this becomes significant for us. In 1917, in Arroyo Seco, in California, there was a Pentecostal camp meeting, and a man got up because he had a dream. And in the dream, Jesus appeared to him and said, you've been baptizing wrong. You can only baptize in the name of Jesus. There is no Trinity. He's a mm. Sibelian. There is no new heresy. It's all old heresies that resurface. Yeah. And ironically, most of the time, they resurface in very similar ways. If we deviate from the Catholicity of the Church, we will deviate from the Church, even though we still use the same terms and practices. Second thing I'll point out about this is uh, one of the canons. So there were seven canons, seven like rules that the Church made at this council. The third one, it's the third canon, becomes an issue not now, but much later that the bishop, the patriarch of Constantinople, is raised up to being second in place to the bishop of Rome. Now, for those who don't know, we mentioned the five historic patriarchs, uh, Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem. Now, this has to do with primacy of place and who teaches and negotiates and how do you resolve conflicts, okay? So Rome, and we'll have to do something on the papacy at some point, I think, a singular episode, maybe two, because of the, the bonus oh. one we did this week was... Right. Yeah, pretty. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, um, the papacy always, since the time of Peter and Paul, had a preeminence, meaning there was respect and reverence given to the Bishop of Rome, understanding he was a successor to St. Peter and Paul. This changes through history of preeminence, and preference, deference to supremacy. They're not the same thing. Well, we can talk about, we'll talk about all that when we get to something specific on the papacy. But this idea of preeminence, that did exist, and it existed very, very early. You respected and defaulted to the opinion of the Bishop of Rome, unless he was wrong. So we got letters where Cyprian is combating the, the you know, Pope Stephen and whatnot. So, or Bishop, I would say. I, don't, I wouldn't use the word Pope yet, because even the designation of the Bishop of Rome as a Pope, and you can't use the word Pope for other bishops, doesn't happen, and I think, until like 1098. It's that old. It's that, that much later in Christian history. But this here, Constantinople is raised up to number two. 
not Antioch and not Alexandria, but Constantinople. And the reason they do it is because Constantinople has become the new imperial capital after old Rome. So it, it becomes a political power play that's beyond okay. the scope of just the church herself. Those are two big things there. But uh, as it pertains for us today, it's this Sabellianism that you want to guard against, this modalistic understanding that there is no trinity, that God is, is one essence, or he's one person with three masks. He's not. He's one divine being with three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Very important. Very important to get that in there. My goodness. Yeah. That nonsense. Well, I mean, so when you take into consideration what they're dealing with, you can see why they're not going to permit openly professing heretical bishops even a seat at the table. Right. You know what they're going to do. That should come Uh, back into dialogue today, because we will seat bishops in council who are known violators of the creeds and of the councils. They have no business sitting in council with their brother bishops, because they're going to interject their heresy into the church. And I think the other thing that was interesting that happened there, like we talked about, they said that the Maximus was not a bishop, that is, that it was invalid. With that was a decree that everyone who he had placed into to whatever, they were, no, they, they were no longer valid. Right. Ooh. So they, they made sure it was, it was in there. It wasn't just what is assumed from the, the fact that you're the bishop who laid his hands on you was invalid. Now it's... Right. They specifically stated this, and we're not going off an assumption. You're invalid, and everyone notice the have- lack of the lack of concern about your sincerity. See, either the word became flesh, or the word did not. Well, the word did become flesh, and he did dwell among us. So this is the this is what spirituality is not to be ghostly, right? So the apostolic succession to the imposition of hands is really or not the transference and the extension of Christ's ministry through his successors, right? And so if you've got somebody who's invalidly ordained, it's not just that guy, it's everybody else that he's appointed, ordained, put into office, given parameters of authority, et cetera, et cetera. If he's not really a bishop, then by default, everything else collapses. And this, oh, I'm telling you, this creates a whole other mess of situations for us to talk about in contemporary issues because of the what does ordination mean? What does it mean to be apostolic? What do these words mean? Because they just kind of hang out there in the ether, and we, we assume because we sincerely believe what we believe that we're right. But the doctrine of the apostolic succession is so profoundly ingrained in the church, they don't even consider what they're doing to be a problem. As a matter of fact, they see it as their responsibility. One other thing that was yeah, interesting yeah. was that there's three that were really, like the, the first canon really, it's important, but it, it's just restating what was already being done in the first council and saying, okay, that's also Arianism, so stop it. Right. <laughs> uh, but the other one was the, uh, the legislation imposing upon the bishops the observance of diocesan and uh, patriarchal limits. Yeah. And that was also specifically to the issue that the bishops from Egypt were coming up right. to do what they did. And if they had respected the geographical jurisdiction, that would have never been an issue. Yes. That's actually a canonical issue that came up in the Anglican Communion, and it's coming up right now, because we have the scores of bishops that are Western in mind. Not, and I'm saying Western, like modern, postmodern Western who met Western, who changed the doctrines of the Trinity, changed the stances on sexuality, changed, mm-hmm. they're changing these practices, but they still retain office. And so what the 
global confessing group of Anglican bishops have done who adhere to the canonical teaching of Scripture and to the creeds, right, to, the, to this Catholic history we're talking about. They are ordaining people to go in and take those places, even though they don't have the buildings yet. And so there was this whole outcry a couple of years ago that said, well, you can't do that. You're, you're crossing jurisdictional lines. And the response was, look at what happened at this Council of Constantinople. It was, yet were these bishops from Macedonia and from Egypt? Yes, but they were Pneumatomokians. They were denying the divinity of the Trinity or the divinity of the Holy Spirit, or they're semi-Aryans. So there are things that will invalidate somebody's orders. There are things that won't. That's the Dauntless controversy that we'll get into another time. But some things invalidate, other things do not. And it takes the consensus mind of the church to work through that, and then to make the decisions, the weighty and responsible decisions that have to happen because of it. And, and I think the, the decisions, as far as that goes here at this council, we're kind of clear-cut, because from the very get-go, um, Maximus was not—it wasn't legitimate. So you could say that everybody that you have ordained in any office whatsoever is not legitimate. But what do you do when you, you have a bishop who starts his ministry the right way, but halfway through flips? And yeah. that's where it starts to get dirty. Do you say, well, nothing you've ever done is legitimate? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it starts to get a little bit more, um, yeah, a little bit more complicated. It does, and the church has provided answers for that, but that's not the time for this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's we don't want to get into the, the issues of validity and invalidity, and licit and illicit, and regular and irregular. There's there's a lot of terminology there for that that we would need an entire episode to just to go through. Well, I think that I don't want to say wraps up, but that kind of gives a good understanding of that council. What was going yeah. on? A lot of crazy stuff. Not a. I don't you see every day. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think, you know, as far as a, as a flyover of the Second Ecumenical Council, I think that's, and folks are free to send in any other more detailed questions, of course. but there's, there's the gist of it, yeah. Uh, I think the other one we wanted to get to today was the Council of Ephesus, year 431. Yes. Yeah, so this is like Bible Ephesus. This is Ephesus, Third Ecumenical Council, 431. And uh, let's see, who's the, who's the protagonist, the guy who's creating the problem here? Lada, the Patriarch of Constantinople, the Bishop of Constantinople, the number two amongst the five, uh, <laughs> named Nestorius. Oh, my. Now, yeah. let me say that, that with Nestorius, there are people that say he has not been accurately and adequately represented in history. Okay? So let's grant that for a second. Let's just say what the man himself actually said and did can be subject to interpretation. That's fine. His followers? No. So let's, put, let's go ahead and the certain followers certain spillovers of his ideas we would, we would want to correctly address and amend, okay? Nestorius, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the classical lingo here. I'm not going to keep qualifying to say Nestorius, well, his follower. Nestorius, well, his follower. We're not, gets confusing. You guys with me? With you. Uh, yeah. Okay, hopefully our listeners are too. All right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what Nestorius started to say, and he had been saying for a while, is that you could not refer to Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, as Theotokos. You couldn't say Theotokos. You had to say Christotokos. Now, why was he making this distinction? Because he was saying that Christ, Jesus, is two persons. That the Word, this is Nestorian theology, okay? The Word, the eternal Word, the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus of Nazareth are two different persons. Mm, okay. okay? Now, there are, you've got around that nucleus these swirling other false teachers, you know, that get into these ideas of adoptionism and 
you know, that Jesus of Nazareth becomes the son because the spirit comes upon him and he's adopted by the word, by the father as the word in his baptism. I mean, they get into all these other like, you know, spinning ideas that come out of this. But basically Nestorianism, as it's understood, is that the word and Jesus of Nazareth are two different persons. So you can't say that Mary is the mother of God. That's what Theotokos translates as the bearer of God, the mother of God. You can only say she's the mother of Christ. Well, who is Jesus? Okay. So what the Council of Ephesus doubles down on is to say, no, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There are not two persons. There's one person with two natures. And that'll take us into the fourth one on the monophysite controversy. We don't have time for that today. But to say that in Ephesus, they're doubling down to say, no, no. And Cyril of Alexandria, who's got the backing of the Pope, is the Bishop of Rome, because you could say Pope Cyril as the bishop, but because Pope means father, means father. But he's got the backing of the Bishop of Rome. And Cyril is then taking his argument against Nestorius to say, you cannot say this, you must say Theotokos. So it's in the Council of Ephesus that Mary is first, as far as canons go, canonically called Theotokos. Up until then, you would have said the Blessed Virgin or the Ever-Virgin, or they would just say virgin, but they meant perpetual virginity, not just as she was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but she stayed so her entire life. Now, automatically, I can hear somebody out there thinking, well, Matthew 126, 127, 126, right there at the end of Matthew 1, Daryl, the Bible says, that Joseph didn't know his wife until she had given birth, in the same way that David didn't know McCall until the day she died. Until doesn't mean in the way that it comes across sometimes yeah. in English. It doesn't go that way. So all the church fathers confessed perpetual virginity for Mary, that she stayed that way. The, being a virgin doesn't mean that she gave birth as a virgin to Christ, just that she didn't have a physical husband, that Jesus didn't have a physical father. It means that she maintained her virginity even in the process of giving birth. Okay. And she's the mother of God, because who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is the Word. Right. Confessing her as the mother of God, the Theotokos, as the Council does, is not saying she's the mother of the Father, or she's the mother of the Holy Spirit, or she's the mother of the Divine Trinity, but that she's the mother of the second person. Very, yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, the Councils, and this is an excellent example here, they don't innovate. The closest thing to innovation we've got in the councils is that phrase homoousios from the Council of Nicaea and then in Constantinople, where they're using a philosophical term to sum up a doctrine. Theotokos is not like that. The earliest written evidence we have of this term, Theotokos, is from 250. Yes, 250. Contemporary with Cyprian. There's a Decian persecution that's going on, uh, Decius, one of the one of the emperors, there's persecution happening. So we have a fragment of a text of a prayer called the Subtuum Parasitium, where these people are specifically addressing the Blessed Virgin for protection, that she would intercede for them so that she wouldn't die. They wouldn't die. And in that prayer, in the Greek version of it, if you read it in Egyptian, it's a different different phrase. When you translate it into Greek, Theotokos. Hmm. So for almost two hundred years at least the church has been referring to her as a Theotokos, which is why this becomes an issue, because Nestorius, as the patriarch of Constantinople and the second of the, the five patriarchates, says, no, we must say Christotokos. See, he's innovating. He's innovating the devotional practices. 
because I'm not aware that there's anything liturgically speaking yet. I'd have to look that up. I don't think that she's, she's addressed yet liturgically, but there's multiple, multiple devotional prayers. If anybody has listened to the bonus episode yet, I did that little thing about Mary at the end, but there's multiple devotional prayers back before 250, all the way back to Gregory Thaumaturgus, where people are addressing Mary because they address the saints. Again, we'll get to that in another time, because I know that's, that's too much for some folks. Yeah. Um, but it's Nestorius who's the innovator, not Cyril, not the rest of the church. They're calling her Theotokos. Why are they doubling down and insisting canonically that she's the mother of God? Because if she's the mother of Christ, see, Christ doesn't mean the God-man to them. That's not what they're saying. It's, it's an underhanded way of undermining the theology. So words are really, really important. She's the mother of God because Christ is the Word made flesh. Two person. Two person. That's the Nestorian idea. There's two persons. There's not. There's one person, the council says. One person with two natures. One is divine. One is human. It's just crazy how much, like, the reason why it's so important is because anything that you even do in your Christian walk, or even when you look at the church, if you want to make sure that you're doing it correctly, whether it comes to understanding scripture, understanding, like, principles, even doing actions, what the first thing you have to do is make sure that it's reflecting Christ. Yeah. One thing, absolutely, like, you can never go wrong. If you're making sure it's reflecting Christ, at least as the first step, you're, it's going to help with a lot of different things, because you'll see different people go off, they do crazy things, because they're not doing that very first step. So the fact that they're trying to change and twist what Christ is already, it's very, that's why it's so important that you have to get that down, because, I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but, you know, it's called Christianity for, right. <laughs> obviously, it was first used in Antioch as an insult, but, you know, you right. run with it, and, you know. Yeah, but you know, it, it's that's why it's important because if you don't have this mindset right of like who Christ actually is, realizing that he's actually physically flesh, but he's also one hundred percent man, one hundred percent God. Yep. Then you're gonna have a misinterpretation of what's going on here. Right. The next council, the fourth council in Chalcedon, they will add a lot more language and detail to this nature mm-hmm. person thing in relationship to Christ. Um, and I don't want to read too much of that back into Ephesus just yet, but to say that Nestorius. Right. To bring this back up to the to the rank and hierarchy here for a second, who then can dispo- depose Nestorius? Would be the bishop of Rome. The bishop of Rome. So he's the uh, one that excommunicates him. He he dismisses him. He he, mm. he basically says you you can't be there now. Nestorius then goes basically into Baghdad. He goes off into the Middle East and and creates and establishes this entire movement of churches that still exists. The Assyrian churches. They're they're connected with this. Here's what's incredible. There was a reunion. There was, there was the, the Roman church and the Nestorians reconciled in the 1990s. Really? Yeah. They put out some joint statements together. I mean, so this is, this is we are living in a day and an age when and all this awful stuff is going on around the world, but we're watching these massive moves of Christian reconciliation for things that have been divided for a long time. So that's just a praise God for that. Right. So, and I say that, hey, if anybody's listening right now and they're thinking, you know what? I would love to enter into the fullness of, of the church. I, I've got a relationship with God. I've got a relationship with the Spirit. I know that God talks to me. I, I get used in signs and wonders. I, I've got a good prayer meeting I go to. I, I'm totally in a church, but man, I want to be in the fullness of the church. Well, come home. Yeah. yeah. Return. Come back. The door's wide open. The, the Father's standing there with his arms wide open. Not only is he standing there with his arms wide open, he's running to meet you on the road. And he wants to put a ring on your finger and shoes on your feet and throw a big party. And all of your older brothers, we all got here somehow too. We would love to have a fatty calf with you. <laughs> Not going to complain. No. 
I'm not going to complain about that. Um, I, I do think it's really interesting how they got to this council um, because we talked about the main players here, Nestorius and Cyril. Yeah. Um, so what happens is Cyril goes to, what is it, Sil- what, what the uh, bishop of Rome at the time. Um, he goes to him and says, hey, let's, you need to condemn Nestorius and excommunicate him. When Nestorius goes to the other side and he goes to the emperor and says, you need, we need to call a council because pretty much he sees how, what is happening and what is in the water. And obviously we see what happens. They, they condemn this theology. Uh, Nestorius actually, go, it's said that he goes to a um, monastery and actually recants his view and accepts the, the, main, accept, the main view of the church. Um, but I think what, what's really interesting here is seeing how the state and the church are working together. And it's not a lot of times when we look at the state and the church working together, it's, well, the state tells them what to do. No, what the state calls the council and the church decides. Right. Which is a really interesting, and that's even what the last council was, the, the emperor called the council and the church decides. Like right. the bishops come together and what is the consensus of the bishops and of the church? Correct. This is Anglican practice up until recently. <laughs> How do you like that? Uh, so the what is going on in the Reformation? Because let's bring it let's bring it up to this side and not just back here in Ephesus. The the king calls for a convocation. He calls for the gathering of the church and council to make some decisions. And what does the church make? Not the state. The church writes the thirty nine articles. The church writes the prayer books. The church sets the customs. The church is involved. As far as England goes. They, if I understand in the Church of England, now in the Anglican Communion, it's different in each place, but in the, Angl- in the Church of England, a list of names of candidates are presented to the monarch, and the monarch selects from one of them to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. But she doesn't tell the Church what's going to happen. Right? They're, they're adopting this historic principle and practice that have been going on. And it also refers back to something that Dionysus, is it Dionysus? No, Dognetus talks about, when he says the Church is the soul of a nation. So the, so the state doesn't tell the church what to do, but the, in, in these eras, when the, when the Christian monarchs and emperors, when they gather the church together, they're doing it under their royal protection to essentially say, hey guys, figure this out, because so we can stay united, because the unity of the church is not just of a value to the church, but to the culture. It's in the aspect where the government's not trying to tell the church what to be, it's the fact that the church is going to ref- get reflected into the culture yes. and change. But if you think if you think about it, these typically the leaders were very intelligent, informed people, and were borderline Renaissance men, you know. Yeah. And the idea of like they were multi, they were talented in, in multiple areas. They're hearing the tension that is happening. Yes. And as a leader of that, as a leader, your your goal is unity. Division means that someone can take power from you, so you want unity. Right. Uh, as a leader, be bloodshed, unnecessary yeah, bloodshed. Right. Exactly. So that's Elizabeth. So that, that's the concern that King Henry VIII has when he doesn't have a son. He doesn't think his daughter, Mary, <laughs> is going to be up to speed. Well, bloody Mary. Uh, <laughs> but, but his other daughter, Elizabeth, reigns for 42 years. And this is exactly what she does when she holds together these competing tensions in the English church. And that has become a source of strength for the global Anglican communion. Yeah. Uh, that, I, yeah. that practice. It's it's almost like you have children that are bickering, and then you, but you have like you know mom or dad that's like no you're going to sit here and talk about this. You don't have a choice. You're going to come here and you're going to talk about it. We're going to have some kind of agreement and we're going to abide by it. 
when the church makes its official statement here. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, so once again, uh, you have Canon 8 of this, this ecumenical council, and they're back to the same issue that they had had before of bishops interfering outside of their jurisdiction. Mm. And so in this one, it was a uh, particular issue with the Bishop of Antioch and affairs of the church in Cyprus. And so this is what decreed that no bishop was to assume control of any province, which was not heretofore from the very beginning, been under his own hand or that of his predecessors, lest the canons of the fathers be transgressed. There you go. Yeah, you cannot get involved in a diocese you have no jurisdictional authority over. Think of it like this. You walk into your neighbor's house. No, no. You walk into a house across the street, across town, <laughs> and you start telling that person what they're going to do in their home. doesn't work. You, one, uh, uh, the rector or a senior pastor from one church doesn't go into another church and say, this is what you're going to do. Mm. That is reserved for a bishop. But neither can a bishop do that to another bishop. doesn't go that way. So think about a couple weeks ago, we talked about Cyprian. We talked about the boundaries, right? All this stuff is, is thoroughly in place. So the further you go through into Christian history, the more they will, they will insist upon and double down upon these canons from the fathers because it creates a well-organized representation of the church. And is that a biblical principle? See that things are done decently and in order. Now, when does this start to break apart? Not just the schism between the East and the West, and not just the Reformation, although in the Reformational era, it becomes a very significant problem. Two issues here start to develop as far as more contemporary history goes. 300 years ago, I thought you said contemporary. Well, that's not that long as far as church history goes. Uh, Contemporary history, as much as I love a lot that he did, this was bad. Wesley ignored parish boundaries. He said, the whole world is my parish, meaning I'll go wherever I feel like I need to go to preach Christ. I'm not going to respect parish boundaries. If the church in England had the strength of these guys at Ephesus, Constantinople, and Nicaea, they'd have yanked him back faster than you can imagine. They would have said, this is your rectory, you preach here. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have let him do that. And it becomes a big deal because he starts crossing all these boundaries, and he's creating unnecessary friction in the church. His brother, Samuel, says, stop. And then he pulls the same thing. He doesn't wait. I want to say, is it four days? Four months? He doesn't wait. He doesn't give enough time to the bishops to work on appointing a bishop for the colonies. See, when the colonies were still the colonies, everybody was under the authority of the Church of England, if you were, if you were um, English, yeah. and you weren't Catholics in, in Florida or something, uh, you know, or, or, or some of the Quakers or these other groups in various parts of the colonies. But the majority of the English-speaking people, many of them, were Anglicans or some kind of Presbyterian. But point being, Wesley didn't wait for a bishop to be sent over. Because when the revolution took place, you couldn't be an American and have allegiance to the crown. And all the bishops were required to swear allegiance to the king of England. Ah, okay. Wesley doesn't wait. He just goes and consecrates his own people. Well, the uh, Anglicans in New England, well, we can't go to the crown. But is there another group of bishops that we can go to? Yeah. So they go to the church in Scotland. The church in Scotland... There's a little bit of history there that we can talk about with uh, William and Mary and, and, and the Jacobites and stuff. But you've got a group of bishops in Scotland, Anglican bishops, who, are not, who haven't pledged allegiance to the king. They, they don't, they're, they're outside of that sphere. 
So they consecrate a guy named Samuel Seabury, who becomes the first Anglican bishop in the United States. So you see here why these things become important. If Wesley had waited, and I mean this, no respect to my Methodist friends, if Wesley had waited, there would not have been a distinct Methodist body, because Methodism at its core is American Anglicanism. And if Methodism hadn't, and I, this, is, this is a bit interpretive for me, historically, wouldn't have fractured in all the different pieces that it did in the middle to late 1800s if it had had a, had a more centralized root. Now, I can already hear it. Are you saying they're not saved? No. We've talked about this how many times. To talk about salvation, to talk about propriety and order are different issues. It just feeds the, the accusation against, uh, of, from our Orthodox brethren uh, in the Orthodox churches in Rome that says, you Protestants, you guys say you're under the authority of Scripture. You can't even agree with each other. So how can you use one source to say? Right. Because the so, Scripture's not wrong. So when you come back and you look at the canons of the, of the councils, look at what they're doubling down on. They're saying, no, here's the parameters. You can't go outside of this. You don't have a jurisdiction outside of this. And they all agree to it. And if there was a problem, you pass that on up to the bishop. The bishop had a problem. He passed it up to the bishop over him. And that's why you've got those. One of the reasons you have the five patriarchates. And ultimately, if you can't settle it, you call a council or you appeal to Rome. Structure and organization to fix heresy. It's amazing, isn't <laughs> it's, it? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's funny when uh, you don't do what works, you know, it doesn't work. It's, it's true. I mean, it, it's, once again, it's going back to, to what we know, just reaffirming. I mean, this, we look at this as like, oh, like this, this council and nothing new was established. It's, no. it's going back and it's maybe like mentioning specific people, but it's nothing new. Well, it, it, it touches on even the way we do missions today the way we do mm-hmm. world missions, the way we do church planting, the way we do evangelism, we don't take into consideration the Christians who are probably already there because we got a new word from God. We got a new revelation. We got a new understanding. None of that is representative of scriptural canonical teaching nor the practice of the church in her undivided history. It's just not. And so we run out and we do what we want and we've created inconsistency in the sight of the world. And, we've, and in so doing, by claiming divine power, we've said the Holy Spirit's with us. Do you think for a moment that the Pneumatomokians at Constantinople didn't have signs and wonders? Of course they did. See, this is, a, this is a worldview where people have dreams and visions, and there's healings, and the angels are showing up. Whether you're a heretic or not, it's the world that they live in. And we've got this notion today because I have this inner burning on the inside, or I had a vision, or I... I had a dream that this is my commission, and because people have flocked to that, it, that is my, my crown. And you'll, you'll quote Paul, this is my crown in the Lord, this is my proof. No. No. Isn't resonant with the church historically, because the Holy Spirit will not do that. He will, he will not go lead us one way and then lead us another way. He will not lead the church in a bunch of confusing paths. He doesn't do it. That's the flesh. At best, that's the flesh. Well-intentioned, but the flesh. I definitely, you can t- definitely see the uh, reflections of the past definitely coming into the future. I think that about covers or our two consuls that we're kind of talking about today. Yeah. Definitely you can see the implications of it in today's world. But yeah, again, if you guys have any questions or anything like that, or you guys want us to discuss topics, I mean, we're open for it. Uh, where can they send those questions to, Father Daryl? They can send them to me, Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L at ascension, A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N-W-V dot org, or they can send them to you, Caleb. At 
Caleb Ridgeway, C-A-L-E-B-R-I-D-G-E-W-A-Y at gmail.com. Woohoo! Send them to Caleb. Send it, yeah. <laughs> he also enjoys some good memes, so if you can find some of those. You can find me them. some memes. And gift cards. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Oh, hold on now. I'm not trying to get it. <laughs> No, you can send those to my email. At <laughs> Just messing. <laughs> but thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, again, I'm Caleb, and I'm here with Adam. And I'm Daryl. See you all next week.